Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking sustainability in the agricultural supply chains. Agriculture accounts for 30% of greenhouse gas emissions and 70% of global freshwater usage. And with a growing population, the twin challenge is both to make it more sustainable, but also meet growing production needs to feed the world. How far on that journey are we? What are the solutions in place? What are the drivers and pressures that farmers and the agricultural supply chains face? Our guest is Robert Horster. Robert is the Global Sustainability Director for Agricultural Supply Chains and Head of Environmental Markets for Cargill. As always, you can really support the show by recommending it to a colleague and leaving us a positive review or five stars on the platform you're listening on. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Glad to be here. So we've got quite a, I guess, a, a challenging subject today, which is essentially sustainability or delivering sustainability into the agricultural supply chains, an area which your career is currently focused on. I guess before we dig into some of the drivers behind this change and some of the solutions and ways for us, frameworks for us to think about, it'd be good to kind of get a, a lay of the land on the scale of the challenge that we face in delivering you know food and at the same time making it sustainable yeah i think so it's a great question to to start with because you know the scale of the challenge and the i mean the current lay of the land is actually quite complex if you think about it and the scale of the challenge is significant so just to give you a flavor um first of all i guess if you just to scope it out we're talking about the food system here right and i, I think the challenge that the food system faces today and and cargo being an important player within that food system is that we need to both increase food production and do it in a more sustainable way right so reduce carbon emissions if you will if you had to sort of condense it into one thing we need to do so increase food production and then reduce carbon emissions but i would add to that if you think about agriculture which is essentially the food producing machine we also need to think about water, right? So the food system today is responsible for about 30% of greenhouse gas emissions globally. That includes transportation and, and the actual growing of the crops. And then there's um, the additional draw on 70% of our freshwater reserves, right? So if you think about it in terms of emitter of greenhouse gas and consumer of water, it's a significant factor that we need to tackle. Mm. Um, at the same time, that system needs to grow to feed about 2 billion people in addition to what we have today in about you know 25 years, right? So it's, you can see the, the size of the challenge right there. And, and I guess that food consumption and thereby the water consumption, which is 70% is an astonishing number, and 30% of greenhouse gas emissions – that food consumption is also not linear, right? Just, you know, at the same time, more and more people are coming out of, of poverty. As people progress through economic development, there's a change in, in food and dietary habits, typically towards more protein, and that itself then compounds the issue. Is that a fair statement? That's a, that's a very fair statement. It's in, you know, there's ample research out there that suggests that the once you're at the, at the inflection point of a country coming out of 
you know, poverty, as you as you rightly say, and then you get this growth of middle class consumers. You, 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 there's an exponential growth in you know, of consumption and processed of processed food. So you think about everything we, you and I eat, you know, as a Western consumer. I mean, there's an exponential growth in that, and there's a multiplier in that too, right? Because you think about the conver- some conversion factors in, you know, you think about feed to meat conversion factors. You know, to have to produce a kilogram of beef, you need seven kilograms of animal feed for instance, right? And then there's, you know, if you grow a ton of wheat, there's there's 16 tons of water needed to grow that wheat. So it's that type of magnitude that you need to think about. That's the multiplier. And then the other thing is the the, the sheer growth in numbers of, of middle-class consumers. India, as an example, adds 35 million middle-class consumers every year to its population, right? So that's not just people, it's people who can actually afford processed food. So that's twice the size of the Netherlands, right? Just just talk about my own country. There's another layer of complexity here as well, because as we're going through climate change and essentially greater climate volatility, more more intense events more frequently around the planet. And we saw that this year we had Walter Cronin on talking about just the, the crop, uh, the yields that have been impacted around the world as the climate shifts, food production also becomes more fragile and more challenging as well. Yes, that's a very fair statement. So that that needs to happen as well. So at the, at the, so you so if you double click on the on what needs to happen as you grow as you think about how you grow food, it, you know not only do you need to decarbonize, you need to make the system as a whole more resilient to things like climate change. To your point, right? So it's it's both and. It's not just a choice. Yeah, yeah, um, and we've talked about water what about on the soil side as well that you know soil depletion and and that piece because that's also critical to i guess some of the solutions we're going to talk to down the line well it just yeah we're going to talk about this later i guess um but if you think about the soil health you know, monoculture this is a broad statement right so it's not necessarily true for every geography for every crop but monoculture doesn't do a lot of good things for biodiversity in fact it does the opposite and so it depletes, if you just grow the same crop year after year on the same land and you farm it in the same way, you're going to be depleting the land, right, of its essential nutrients. And so there is, and I'm sure we'll, we'll speak about this later, but there's solutions out there that, that not necessarily prescribe, but that suggest that you can grow the food in a different way, right, by, you know, through crop rotation and so on and so forth. We'll talk about those uh, practices later, but the intent is to increase the soil health. And, be- and as you increase the soil health, you're going to make the soil more resistant. And as, as you think about it in terms of how would I look at this in terms of yield? It takes the, it takes out the high and the low probably, right? It just it doesn't it, but it certainly takes out the low in the sense that in years of drought, the crop is more resilient, and, and therefore the food system that you know is more resilient because it is resistant to drought and 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 so on and so forth. Yeah, and and I just want to talk briefly about the farmers as well. But just just going back to that greenhouse gas emissions, you know, that thirty percent number. Where can you just give us some sense of actually that's an enormous number? Where is that primarily coming from? So transportation is a piece, right? But it's actually the emissions of greenhouse gases that happen when you grow the crop, when you plow the land, when you apply fertilizer, and so on and so forth. So that's that's where the emissions come from. Yeah. Okay. And then on the farmer's side as well, because 
this is and and in that in this is there sort of a, a microcosm of the broader challenge that actually we were just talking about before we came live is you've got somewhat of a mismatch between short-term incentives and longer-term incentives, right? So today, obviously, you, want to, you know, the farmer needs to, you know, faces financial pressures, needs to get the best yield they possibly can. That probably means exhausting the soil. Um, whereas over the long term, you've got a different suite of incentives around actually the investments that are needed to start building sustainability into their agricultural practices so that the land survives for longer, takes more crops, etc., how has this challenge and scale of the challenge, can you contextualise it in, in with respect to farmers around the world as well? I mean, they've got local pressures, they've got annual pressures, etc., as well as longer term pressures. Well, I think, so first of all, I think just speaking philosophically, you know, we see farmers as part of the solution of what we're going to talk about later, right? But also what we talked about at the beginning is if you if you if you want to produce more food, that's what farmers do. And if you want to decarbonize our food system, that's what farmers can do. Right? But to your, to your question on the challenges that farmers are facing is, so first of all, I think there's downstream a lot of demand, you know, from companies going out there and saying, you know, we have climate goals, for instance, right? So that's, that's one thing. Those climate goals typically revolve around, you know, greenhouse gas. And sometimes there's something about water. Sometimes there's something about land use. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know how farmers grow crops right in 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 some cases so that's what that's the so farmers are facing are faced with the demand downstream from corporates downstream from where they sit from corporates who have climate commitments so that's number one i think number two is there is evolving legislation now depending of course which geography you're speaking about and since i'm sitting in europe i'm i'm closest to what's happening here in 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 the european union and there's tons of legislation out there right whether it's for imported goods such as the EUDR the deforestation regulation or whether it's the green deal right that puts requirements onto how how food is grown you know if you just focus on food production here for a minute how food is grown but there's legislation everywhere there's you know there's a there's a carbon law in Brazil there's there's LCFS in North America and so many countries many many pieces of legislation so that's second Third, I guess, is evolving science, right? So even if we're just getting ready just to get the farmer, work with the farmer to meet those climate commitments downstream from where the farmer sits, and even if you're ready to tackle that legislation, then still there is the ever-evolving field of scientific insights as to what is good farming practices, right? So that's the that's one thing I think which is relevant for this conversation. The farmer himself, him, him or herself, you know, needs to diversify as well. So there is the farmer is a businessman or businesswoman. I think we often we often forget that in our conversations. But the farmer wants to the farmer runs a business, and so there is a, a natural need to diversify as as other as normal businesses would. I would say there is uh, there is a need to be more sustainable. I mean, nobody wants to be more sustainable than the farmer because at the end, I visited farmers in Brazil in May and of this year, and the farmers were, say, were saying to me, look, I've been farming in a sustainable manner for the last four generations, or we've been farming for the last four generations. We've been watching land conversion, we've been doing water conservation, we've been looking at row crops and, and crop rotation and everything else. So they're doing it already, right? And so that's what the natural tendency of the farmer is, right? And so we're just, you know, cognizant of the fact that you need to leverage that. You need to just, you're not starting from scratch, in other words. And then finally, there's the visibility. I think and what I mean by visibility is that there's a demand downstream 
and, 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 and frankly speaking, also upstream, right? And also from regulators to see where do crops come from, right? So what's the provenance of your palm oil or of your soybean oil or of your cocoa beans or of your coffee, right? So there's the traceability and the tracking and the tracing, if you will, that exposes the entire food system. So those are the five, five or six trends here that I think that the farmer is is having to deal with, right? And and with him or her, the companies that work in agriculture like Cargo. Yeah, yeah, that was a, a fascinating exposition. I want to draw two of those out. Yeah. Um, namely, that sort of the, the visibility piece. Mm-hmm. But firstly, can we just talk about that legislation? Because it is, as you described at the moment, for the most part, a patchwork. Are we seeing, perhaps, you know, going forwards, are we see a coalescence around sort of agreed policies on a, global basis are those are those various legislations starting to intertwine because that is a a big headache for large farmers and the agribusiness itself to navigate i assume yeah it's so is to so to your question is it is it converging do we see a global legislative framework emerging no do some of the are some of the systems starting to look alike yes um you know you think about biofuels and just ignore the time element here because I think Europe was ahead of everybody else, I guess, in terms of biofuel legislation. But what we're seeing, for instance, in North America and some states in, in the US or some provinces in Canada, that is starting to look very much like where Europe is heading as well, right? So it's converging, if you will, but it's not exactly the same, right? You and I were talking before we started recording about the carbon markets. You know, there's there's 16 countries, I think, by my latest count, that have an emerging carbon legislation right brazil is one of them what brazil is developing doesn't look very dissimilar to what china is developing but it looks different right because so different countries different types of legislation there is no global framework today i guess for any of the things we talked about so i I think that's the direct answer to your question but they're starting to converge in the sense that there's you know your governments are trying to tackle the same thing and then on that visibility piece you spoke about obviously there's significant pressures you know sort of upstream of the of the supply chain with whether that's through legislation scope three emissions etc and you know investors except you know that whole piece that we talk about a lot are we seeing i guess on the other side of the supply chain a willingness from the end consumer to pay more for sustainable attributes as a, as aside from organic attributes etc but you know really willing to pay more for an egg if it's been sustainably farmed compared to another one it's a great question, and it's it's um, it's it's also a broad question because I think you need to think about okay, so what sustainable attribute are we talking about? So I'll give you two extremes, right? So traceability or deforestation or no deforestation, rather no conversion. I mean that's becoming table stakes, and and rightfully so, right? So you have to have the confidence as a consumer that the forest has not been taken down, right, for your good that you're consuming. But then there's already a nuance right there, right? Because you think about Brazil, a country we talked about earlier. I mean, Brazil has, I mean, the Brazilian Forest Code, which is one of the strongest legislative frameworks around natural vegetation globally, the farmer still has the right to convert because the farmer has the right to build a livelihood. So then you think about the European legislation, you think about, hey, you know what, no goods can come in from this is the EUDR, no goods can come in if they've been grown on deforested land. So that's that's at odds right there. So in the in terms of the traceability, do people actually pay for this? Not when it's becoming table stakes, not when it's becoming legislation. Legislation has the tendency to create a level playing field. 
But I would say everything over and above table stakes or everything over and above legislation has the potential to extract a premium. So when you think about the example of Brazil, right, I would say that, okay, so the goods that come in from Brazil have to be deforestation free. But if on top of that, there would be an attribute around granular traceability, right, or the good has been organically or regeneratively grown, or there's more attributes you can think about in terms of, of livelihoods, right? So that, then then the consumers are willing to pay, and sometimes that appears front of pack, sometimes it's it's sort of expected or implied. But in cocoa, we've had that example where the deforestation aspect has been, a lot, in fact, has been has been commoditized in the, in the cocoa sector, but there's still brands and companies out there that can actually extract a premium for what they, for what they do, right? And the same is true for... Uh, palm. So it's a, sorry, it's a long-winded answer to your question. Are co- no. consumers willing to willing to pay? Yes, but it depends on what they're paying for, right? And and it's, sometimes it's a narrative, sometimes it's a real claim, sometimes it's something that comes with the legislation but is over and above the legislation. Yeah, so I, I find that topic sort of fascinating, and I think it's been interesting to how see how that play plays out. Uh, over the next decade and obviously how it's being impacted today by inflation you know where some of these attributes people just can't afford to pay for right or aren't willing to in in this type of environment there's probably to add to your five is there a sixth which is for these companies in the supply chain whether or not it's in if it's not in current legislation you might still need to be thinking clearly about this just to be able to participate in the supply chains that you want to, right? You know, a lot of this this stuff is now being mandated, as you said, by companies. And just to participate in those supply chains, you need to be able to to demonstrate your sustainability credentials and compliance and so forth. Can you just give us some sense about how, I guess, the supply chain itself is kind of self-policing and working towards a more sustainable outcome, if indeed it is? Yeah, um, so maybe maybe one example would be the palm sector, right? And so the palm sector, if you recall, in, in 2015, 2016, there was this massive attack on the sector. And, and, you know, when I say attack, that sounds very negative. And there was this, the sector was under scrutiny for deforestation. And I was part of those debates in the early days where basically downstream consumers were saying, okay, you, ha- you have to stop the deforestation. And this was, this was directed at the entire sector. And so what the sector did, there was at the time you had already the round table for sustainable palm oil, but as a sector, we felt it wasn't necessarily covering all aspects of sustainability. And so two things happened at the same time. RSPO as an organization saw that and said, okay, we need to have something like RSPO plus. In fact, I think that's what they called it, uh, which was, you know, just principles and criteria over and above the existing principles and criteria. So that would tackle a number of concerns. And at the same time, there was a, a movement, if, if for lack of a better word here, Paul, that I would call NDPE, right? Which is non, no deforestation, no development on peatlands and respect for human rights, which was a sector imposed. It, it's, you call it self-policing. I think that's probably the better term. And so what happened is that we said, okay, so as a sector, we commit to NDPE. So we will be ourselves imply designing and implying policies that have NDP as at its at its core and we won't be buying anymore from companies that don't have it and so by you know, fast forward to 2023 and I think that the vast majority of, of, of plantations out there plantation companies have an NDPE policy 
and also have the policy supplier code of conduct, if you will, not to buy from companies that don't sign up to NDP. I think that was a great example of how the industry self-policed because it wasn't it wasn't necessary in response to, to to genuine consumer demands and customer demands, right? Just let's be clear. But also it wasn't happy itself with the the certification that existed. Now RSPO still happily exists, right? And so I would I you know, there's a fair percentage of, of palm oil that gets traded today under RSPO terms. But then I would say on top of that or next to it you have NDPE that the vast majority has signed up to. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, so let's move towards I guess the, the the chunk of this episode really on the the current trends and solutions that are out there both today and kind of where you see those particular tracks to tackle this dual problem which is intimately intertwined between increasing food to meet growing demand of a growing global population but at the same time reducing greenhouse gas emissions and also ensuring that there's a sustainability around water which i think is as we would all agree is going to become a very important topic over the next 20 years and and soils and so forth maybe to look at you know if as food moves what happens right and so roughly there's three sources of emissions right there's the growing of the food there's the growing of the crops right which happens on the land so at the farm gate if you will there's the transportation that happens to the first point of collection to the export elevator then they say ocean transport and so on and there's the processing of the of the goods as they reach final destination right and so all three are emitters of greenhouse gas and in some sort and in some way certainly one and three sort of growing and the processing consume water or use water and all three need to be tackled right all three need to be sort of you know to, i mean you need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in all three in order to abate emissions from from the food system we we talked about regenerative agriculture um, only really briefly but so let's let's dig into this so at the end of the day we believe that there's a lot of discussion about regenerative agriculture and i don't think there's one definition of regenerative agriculture regen ag it also depends who you speak with i mean you've got the purists let's say academia and they need to be pure in in how they approach the science i mean they'll say you know regen ag uh, you know they're finding definitions for what regen ag is um and you go to the corporates and you know even within the corporate sector there's varying um opinions on what region ag actually is right and so what is a region ag system what does it look like um but roughly roughly speaking i would say there's there's you know there's three pillars if you will on which region ag rests one is the actual practices that the farmer can implement and that he needs to be incentivized for two is then the, the the fertilizer the application of fertilizer on the field and three would be then the chemicals, right? So let's say the, the, the weed con- weeds control and so on and so forth. Also there, you need to think about how does that emit greenhouse gas and what can I do? So if you double click on region ag, so that's one of, the, you know, one of the things we should look at. But the ultimate goal, I think everybody who, I mean, everybody has an opinion on region ag, and, but I think the ultimate goal of region ag that we have very little disagreement on is that it increases the soil health or that it should increase the soil health is what I should say. Now, then your next question is going to be, okay, so what is soil health, right? How do you define that? You can define that academically. You could start you could start very practically and say, what are the proxies for soil health? Because soil health as, a, as an entity, if you will, is very difficult to 
define or to sort of scope even. So I would say if you take the proxy route, you would say one of the things you could do is soil organic carbon measurement. You can think about biodiversity above the ground and underground. You can think about water and you can think about other emissions, right? But you have to baseline essentially the field and say, so what is business as usual? And then if I do regen ag, you know, the three pillars that I just talked about, so what, how does that influence emissions? There is emerging science on what soil health might be. And then you think about soil organic matter, right? And how you, and how you define that. But I think it's, well, A, for the audience that we're speaking with, speaking to today, and B, for the, for the, uh, you know, the length of this conversation, it's probably going to be too, too deep to talk about that. But that's basically what, what, if you go back to what Regen Egg tries to do, it tries to increase the soil health, but it does more. It is, so one of the, so, because we talked about resilience, right? And at the beginning of this, of this podcast. And so it increases the resilience of the land such that when you have a drought, when you have an extreme weather event, um, the land can still, the farmer can still achieve a reasonable yield for his or her crop. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Can you give us some kind of examples? And I guess a lot of this is technology driven as well. This is this idea of kind of going from the field to the individual plant, even to the molecular level from a farming, from a fertilizing, from a chemical standpoint. Can you just give us sort of some sense of of how much effort is going into this? Is Regen Ag a real thing today or is it still sort of, a, uh, you know, as you say, it's loosely defined by different organizations and therefore essentially can mean nothing at all at some, in some organizations. Give us some sense of kind of where we are and, and how much investment uh, is going in and kind of where some examples perhaps of the technologies that you see being implemented. So your first question on, on how big is it? I don't have exact numbers, but I, it, is, it is definitely beyond a trend or a fed. Uh, you know, basically, we're saying it is—it is real. It is being implemented in North America. It is being implemented by ourselves and by by our competitors and by, I mean, other people active in 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 our space in the agricultural space. And it is a significant number of acres. I mean, it's in the millions, and multiple millions of acres are being are are being grown. Sorry, are be have been converted to to regenerative practices. Europe, same thing. We've got a few actors active there, including ourselves. Australia, we're starting to scratch the surface here a little bit in Brazil, although you would say their regenerative farming practices have been business as usual. So you need to think about other things that constitute re- regenerative farming. We can talk about that if, if you like. And and China, it's the same. It's it's also starting, right? So it's it, globally, I would say it's it's more than a hype, right? It's it is real. It is it is here, and the the reason why it is real is because farmers see the benefits now clearly you know as you design these programs you need to meet the farmers where they are so some farmers have already like my example on brazil don't go to the farmers in brazil and talk to them about carbon because they're they've been 
they've been sequestering carbon for the last, like this farmer that I met, these farmers that I met, you know, for the last four generations. So you need to do other things. Same we experienced in Australia where farmers are used to dryland farming. And so you think about, so what are the other things you could do? Don't, don't talk about carbon, but let's start with a baseline of how much, what your emissions are and then, and then build from there. There's places in Europe where you could start with the car, you can lead with the carbon because uh, we're not doing enough yet, right, to sequester that carbon. Which brings me to the techniques that you, the second part of your question is basically, if you think about, again, the system of Regenac, you think about practices, fertilizer use, and chemicals, you think about the practices. There's a number of practices, and there's a list of, I don't know, I've seen the latest list I've seen was like 12 or 15 different practices, but the real, the big ones are no till or limited till of the land, planting cover crops in between two harvests. And then there's the, um, you know, something you can do with, with the fertilizer, right? So basically then crop rotation is, is, is part of that. So if you think about where farmers are and, and our, our philosophy has always been, you need to meet the farmers where they are. You shouldn't come with a list of things. Here's what you should do. And then I will pay you a premium. You, you got to sit down with the farmer, which is what we do in, in Europe and in, and in North America. And basically let him or her talk and say, so what are you doing? What are you already doing, right? If you're doing cover cropping, if you're doing no-till, if you have a, if you have a good rotation of your crops, then maybe we need to start thinking about other things. But that's sort of the, that's the, I, would, I don't want to say the low-hanging fruit because it is definitely something that needs to be done, you know, thoughtfully and mindfully with the farmers, but it's, it's the easier practices you can implement if a farmer is not doing anything at this point. Mm. And 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 for our edification, do these typically lead to rising costs, or are they cost neutral, or are they actually cost saving? These practices, in terms of if you are actually able to reduce the amount of chemicals or fertilizer that a farmer's consuming to maintain the same yields, it's both, right? But but then I would say farmers. So in in terms of sequencing, if you will, farmers are investing ahead of value, and 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 we'll be there. So as we think about our own program. Um, which is called Regen Connect or um, Sustain Connect in, in, in Australia, which is its cousin. We are there with the farmer to work with the farmer and say, look, I mean, yeah, we know you're investing ahead of value, but we're providing hopefully, uh, and this is how most systems work actually, but we're providing a line of sight to a future increase in soil health, resilience of your crop, potentially crop yield increases, again, depending on where the farmer is in, in, in the journey, but also the soil type and the climate and so on and so forth. But more importantly, because when you talk about savings, you think about water use, right? What regenerative farming does typically is it increases the water holding capacity of the land. The easiest way, I was at a farm recently and they explained it to me. They said, look, if you increase the soil organic carbon in the ground, you are increasing, you're actually expanding the root system and roots have the tendency to create these little wormholes. And so you, you make... So little holes in the ground, literally, right? Which and then the land becomes a sponge. That when there's a soaking rain, it, it soaks up all the all the water, and it uh, there's no runoff, right? So you you achieve two things: you 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 reduce the chemical runoff because farmers use chemicals, and second, you hold the water in the ground. You hold the nutrients there. So then the farmer saves immediately on his water bill. But there might be an investment ahead of time in terms of ahead of value in terms of the equipment that a farmer needs to needs to buy, right? Because no till means you're not gonna you're not gonna till the land, which basically means you you're you're pushing the seeds literally into the soil. Well there's I mean, 
folks like John Deere, they've they've developed equipment that can actually do precisely that. But you need to you need to buy that equipment or at least lease it with a group of farmers, right? So it's a little bit of both. I mean, there's 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 savings, there's costs, but at the end of the day, then the farmer will say net net, this might cost me money. And then you need to talk about incentives, which I guess we can talk about next. But that's basically what region ag that's that's a typical conversation you would have with a farmer when you speak about region ag. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's just touch on those incentives now, and then we'll move on to yeah. the transportation piece. Okay. Yeah. So the incentives then, at the, at the end of the day, most region ag programs that we see around the world are leading with carbon. And what I mean by that is it's 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 about the carbon sequestration. Some programs have evolved already from there, but let's start let's start with the carbon because it's it's not just about the carbon; it also serves as an example. So by increasing the soil organic matter, you increase the, the soil organic carbon in, in the ground. So you hold the carbon essentially where it is in the root system. So the root system is, is, is where, the, where the carbon sits and where the nutrients are consumed. If you plant the cover crops, basically you're going to keep the root system in the ground. And if you don't plow or you don't till, you're going to keep the root system in the ground. So not only does that abate emissions, because when you plow, you're going to be increasing those emissions or actually letting... You're letting the greenhouse gas, you're releasing it, if you will. Um, so by keeping everything in the ground, there you, you increase the soil organic carbon and you can measure that. You can measure that in, in, in three different ways. And typically it's not one or the, one or the other. It's, it's, a, it's a triangulation of, of three measurements. You can do remote sensing. Then you have a model that, you know, where you fill in basically the characteristics of your climate and your soil and everything else. And, and that model spits out a potential baseline and then there's a sampling so every 100 yards or every 100 meters you, you take a sample and it's a it's a self-reinforcing loop if you will right so you you do the sampling that teaches uh, that teaches the, the the satellite what it actually sees right and then there's the software in there that actually says okay so now i'm seeing what the sample is telling me and this goes into a model and so on and so forth so at the end of the day there's a measurement of the carbon that is being kept in the ground and if that increases the farmer might, through measurement and verification, might demonstrate that he's actually doing what the practices are promising, which is, uh, you know, the regenerative practices are promising to increase the soil organic carbon. Similar to a carbon offset, it's not a carbon offset, but similar to a carbon offset, there is an equivalent value of that carbon that you keep you keep in the ground. That if that's, As long as that travels within the supply chain, so it goes to the farmer, to, you know, a company like Cargill, and then it goes to one of our customers, it stays within the supply chain and you call it a carbon inset, right? It's, I guess that's the way to, to think about it as it stays in the supply chain. There's a car, it's embedded in your supply chain. So it's a carbon inset. So you pay for, you pay for the carbon that the farmer sequesters. So you should, should see the carbon go up. So the farmer needs to agree to permanence. So just don't change your practices. Keep the, keep the, keep the organic carbon in there. And then the supply chain, so downstream for the customer sits, pays for that. It, it literally pays for the carbon that is that is sequestered, in some way or form, right? You can you can do it and you can take it in many different ways, but in some way or form, the, there's a payment associated with how much carbon the farmer sequesters. That is the incentive. Yeah, obviously, there's incentives as I understand on on you know saving water, etc. You know, not having to pay for more. But just on that carbon piece, is is that there's a essentially what you're saying is there's a mechanism somewhere in every jurisdiction that a car that a farmer can can receive those incentives or they're kind of lacunae within that or, or you know just just help understand that a little bit more yeah it's not it's not based on legislation there's no legislative framework today um that actually mandates that 
you have to pay for the carbon sequestered. It's a it's it's an agreement as a supply chain, right? It's an agreement between the downstream customer and ourselves. It's, it's and then between ourselves and the farmer, but the system agrees on doing these practices and incentivizing the farmer to to do this because we're all and this comes back to what we talked about earlier. So if you think about the climate goals that the corporates have out there, the, all, all the corporates have. I mean not all, but most corporates have agreed to some type of emission reduction in their supply chain. And so this is one way to reduce emissions, namely by sequestering the carbon that is that would otherwise be released by growing the, the crop by keeping it in the ground, you know, through regenerative practices. So there's no legislative framework, but there is a commercial agreement, if you will, that that happens. Yeah, this is part of the challenge here at the moment, right, where you do have this patchwork of different you know legislative compliance markets in carbon some voluntary etc in that scenario where there are still some agribusinesses that don't incentivize that and thereby presumably overall can offer a cheaper alternative is there the risk that without having this as a baked in legislation that the table stakes as you mentioned that you know there are incentives to not do these type of practices is that a, a fair comment so I'll say two things, and I'll I'll take two extremes of what you're saying. So if you're if if as agricultural companies, right? So Cargill and its and its competitors, we all face the same customers, and it's the same customer base that has these climate commitments. So I I, I think if you choose not to play, then there is the risk of losing business. So that's one extreme. So that's that's when you don't do it. The other extreme would be for legislation to come in, like in the EU, um, Brussels is considering, I mean, it's it's not ba- fully baked, it's not baked at all, in fact, but this is still a debate, but Europe is considering bringing agriculture under the EU ETS, the trading system, right, for carbon emissions. That's when it becomes level playing field. But at the end of the day, you know, if you think about it from a system perspective, right, so forget about Cargill or, or forget about, um, you know, any corporate gains right and from a system perspective this is this is good right because then you're saying look you're going to be incentivizing a system you know through legislation where you actually where you reward farmers for for being more sustainable now you know there's there's tons of things you can throw at that including you know what does the legislation look like and is it is it can it be executed is it enforceable and so on and so forth so many years will follow you know from today for, with a lot of discussion but in essence, right, if a large region like the EU is embedding in legislation that production of food must be more sustainable, I think that is a, that is a good thing, right, from a system perspective. So those are the two extremes, right? So you can choose not to play, but then at the end of the day, you're not serving customers or you cannot serve your customers anymore, right? And if it's embedded in legislation, you create a level playing field. But then I would say, well, from a system perspective, that's probably a good thing to do. Yeah, and I guess it's flipping it from sort of a, a vicious cycle into a virtuous cycle. Yes. Right, actually, these, these practices altogether are actually going to be, you know, going back to the original problem, right? Presumably maintaining yields over the long term, if not boosting them, as well as um, requiring less water, requiring less chemicals, therefore less cost and so forth. And as legislation develops, we hope, you know, farm, there being an actual uh, getting paid, as you say, for the carbon that they are, they are sequestering. Yeah. In in the I guess in the interest of time we we've covered transportation quite a bit more broadly on on how that is going to decarbonize. 
Is there anything specific in the agricultural business that really is a the the focus at the moment, and and sort of the either the most egregious actor, or or where there's some nuances just for the sector that mean that that's an emphasis? Yeah, I think. Look, I mean, transportation is. I mean, twenty percent of of emissions of the food system is transportation, so it's not something to think lightly about. I, I, you're not doing that, but I'm just saying it's it's it is a it is a factor, right? Of 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 um, of it's a material emitter emissions factor. So I would say that if you think about ocean transport, where you've, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the news with, with our ocean transportation folks hitting the news with, with wind wings, right? Which is developed wind propelled vessels. It's, it's, a, it's a great start of the decarbonization of the shipping sector. Yes. I mean, there's been a lot of news coverage on that. It's, it's, it's a great start. And, and when I say great start, it's, it's, you know, you, you need to, th- so if you, if you fast forward a few years and you, many years, I would say then, the cleaner fuels, right? And so, what what is the next generation of how you power vessels, right? Is it's it's the uh, is it? I mean, it's the hydrogen and the ammonia. You start thinking about what needs to be true for those uh, for those fuels. Typically, I would say that if you if you think about it, perhaps in terms of what needs to be true, one thing that needs to be true is that uh, it, you know the cost of emitting should go up for those fuels to become economical. And clearly, also the production of those fuels should also become more economical, but there's, so it's both need to happen, but it's completely within the realm of possibilities that, uh, you know, vessels will be dual or single powered, even with, with cleaner fuels. I mean, it's, it's something that we foresee and, and something that is already happening today to some extent with the first generation biofuels that are being blended with fuel, even for the high seas transportation of, of goods, right? So use of biofuels, and then if you fast forward a few years, right, and uh, it's it's the cleaner fuels such as hydrogen ammonia. You think about road transport and barge transport. I mean, same thing, right? You could use first or second generation. Second generation would be based on waste biofuels to power those vessels, to power those uh, those barges and those trucks. And and that needs to happen in addition to what we talked about in the first forty minutes, which is how you grow how you grow food more sustainably, right? It's not a choice. So shall I do this or shall I do that? It's, it's both need to happen, right? Because we're dangerously close to to the tipping point of not reaching the two percent. I mean, the one one and a half percent we can probably already. I don't want to say write off, but certainly the the two percent. I mean, depending on which which debate you yeah. you you follow, yeah. right? And then the third piece, just to just to finish on on the entire supply chain, is the processing, right? So, put simply, if you reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of how you convert soybeans into soybean meal into or animal feed right or into into soybean oil or how you convert crude palm oil into a refined palm oil or corn into sweeteners i mean there's greenhouse gas emissions right there so reducing the greenhouse gas emissions of those processing facilities is a priority also for cargo right and and so we've got commitments out there Every, most companies have commitments out there in terms of reducing the commissions in what they call scope one and two green power same thing so but you need to hit you need to fire i guess the the message here Paul, you need to fire on all cylinders right in order to abate the emissions of the entire system you know i'm fascinated by sort of some of the 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 way that there's sort of these all add force multipliers right we did an episode probably i think two years ago now on technology driven change in farming with the chief economist of john deere 
and you know looking there is obviously the even the farming equipment is as as we get more down to that plant level is going to become of electrified but also you know more like a series of drones than one big heavy tractor diesel fueled and, and damaging the soil so there's there's you know it's a multi-pronged attack from all sides right that that are, that are driving change yeah and think about solar and wind right the cost of producing solar cells has gone down dramatically i mean like really dramatically I, I cannot think of a parallel, to be honest, right, in terms of unit cost of, of something going down so fast. So it's it's it doesn't cost much anymore to produce a solar cell. In a country like Germany, on a good day with a lot of sun and wind, they can run for one, more than 100% on renewable fuel. So to your point on, on innovations, it's happening, at, it's happening at country level. It's happening at the farm. And some of it is driven by the availability simply of the alternative fuels, right? The solar and the wind. But you know, a lot of it is actually driven by the unit cost of, of some of those uh, alternative um, sources of energy. Yeah, yeah. I just looked it up. So episode 73, Revolutionizing Agriculture, Machines, Software and Genetics. There you go. From uh, yeah. December 2021. Okay, so, so thanks so much for all this. I think, you know, you really put it together for us. Finally... There's lots more to talk about, but I guess you've obviously been spent a long time in these markets and on this, and obviously had a career career in Cargill uh, prior to your current focus. How do you think when you step back? I mean, is the is there a growing crescendo from farmers, from technology, from investors, from legislation that gives you hope that in ten years we will be meeting the both the increase in food demand? But also in a more sustainable way. Can you give us, or are we still very much, you know, you know, it, there's successes here, but some some losses over there, kind of stage. Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I I don't think there's a simple answer to this. And and but I would say I'm hopeful, right? Just to answer your question, and I'm hopeful because I think we're figuring out a system to reward the farmers for what they do. When you just focus on food here, but you take it a bit more broadly, you say, okay, so reward the system for what it does, right? In terms of abating abating emissions. So I'm hopeful you you found the system, and the system is that you've got an emergence all over the world. I've mentioned 16 countries where you have some legislation in some way or form around carbon. There's a system emerging around the world of paying for ecosystem services. We didn't talk. I mean, in my history with Cargo, I, 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 the payment, the term "payment for ecosystem services" didn't exist five years ago, or maybe it existed in some obscure corners or corners of our system, but certainly it wasn't mainstream. Today, when you speak with customers, when you go to conferences where the topic of agriculture is is on the agenda, there is always the topic of of emissions, right? That the two weren't necessarily linked. And then there's a need also to connect the farmers to the market. So that's where companies like Cargo come in and say, you know what, we can connect you to the market. I mean, we're just we're not going to cough this up ourselves. This is going to be we're going to connect you to the market. So we all are going to be for the um, uh, effort you're doing. So there's a system number one emerging, right? And there's an infrastructure number two emerging. So probably the best example is the EU ETS with the EU uh, trading system for emissions. But there's tons of those emerging across the world, right? And so I'm, I'm hopeful that, that that one of those will actually be in, in each geography leading, right? And that we have leading exchanges around the world to trade carbon and to essentially connect the landowner or the farmer with the market. Number three, I think it's the urgency, right? The urgency to tackle 
both climate and food security has never been more acute than today. And there's a lot of press also, right? So you, whichever newspaper you read, I mean, the, the New York Times, I mean, there, I'm, I subscribe to this newsletter that comes in every day around the climate. And there's very good articles in there around, okay, what needs to be done? And so we, so we know what needs to be done. Now, the fourth factor, I think, I, I think, is the movement of capital. So this is going to be an interesting one, right? So the system, so the the markets are there, the system is there, the, the notion is there that something needs to be done and now you need the capital to move. And so I think that if you are able to express the value of sustainability and explain it in plain terms to the financial market, and in fact, translate that into financial returns that are, that are understood by the financial market and by investors, I, I think you've nailed it. <laughs> now, this is, the, this is the hardest part. This is probably worth another podcast, but I think just in, in one or two sentences, I would say that there's a price and there's a value and the price is whatever we see, that's business as usual, what we see in financial markets today. And there's the value of this ecological return that companies are making around the world to make this a better place. And that needs mm. to be recognized by financial markets. And so that's where I think the, that moves to capital because capital moves to the highest yield. I mean, that's a given. And I don't think we should say that's a bad system. I think, I think it's actually a great system, but you need to embrace the financial markets and it's, you know, what Adam Smith used to say, the self-interested pursuit of profit. You need to embrace that in order to move the capital, but then to the right places where you have the highest value. And therefore, I'm not saying the highest price, but I'm saying the highest value, which if you think about the big problems we're facing, so the two challenges that we talked about today, which is food security and, and decarbonization, that's where the money needs to go. So that's what the financial markets and uh, need to figure out. But I think you know, if you see legislation and guidance around the world emerging around disclosures, I think that's, you know, if it's reasonable disclosures, I think that should be right around ESG, that that should go out there because that is basically then one of those elements that needs to be tackled in order to uh, move capital towards value. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we've obviously got the upcoming SEC legislation around emissions and so forth and disclosures there, which will be a driver. And and obviously food security and and Cargill itself has done a phenomenal job as part of this is it you know food is a very efficient market right and actually yeah. we've just seen that over the last you know the the scarcities over the last couple of years about how the market solves those problems ultimately driven by price and then there's this core issue is actually at the moment the price isn't reflective of the value of sustainable attributes particularly around greenhouse gas emissions yeah. and therefore you know we're not pricing these externalities and yes there are companies moving the needle self-mandating creating these systems but there are also others that don't have to right and those typically uh, i was reading an article in the new york times yesterday talking about the number of private companies has shot up dramatically in the u.s mm -hmm. there's far fewer public companies in the u.s today than there have ever have been as a percentage of you know companies over a certain scale partly because of the disclosures are so much less being private, of course. So, you know, it's that bit, if, you know, my my contention would be that the the biggest accelerant to those trends that you, you highlighted is actually making this economically return. So the capital does move, yeah, right, yeah. To, to these spaces. And we, you know, we're still very far away from having a global carbon compliance scheme. Yeah, we're still far away. I, I'm not even sure if that will ever come into existence, uh, Paul. So I, I think that we should be happy if, if there's, you know, a few big 
uh, let's call them markets out there that would actually price carbon. But more, you know, more to your point on, on because I, I think that's where you were heading in terms of pricing the externalities, right? I mean, they've never been priced. I can go to my local supermarket and buy pizza that I can put in the oven, right? And it's costing me three euros 99. Well, there's no way that you can actually get that. I mean, it doesn't reflect any of the externalities, let alone that it probably is the, that it actually represents a positive margin to my supermarkets, right? And to the, and to the producer of that pizza. So my point is that the real price of that pizza is probably is, is a multiple of that 399. But we've never priced that. We've never had that taxation, if you will, of externalities. And that's what we're actually seeing today. If you think about the essence of carbon, you take a step back and you're saying, well, forget about you know, the, the carbon trading and everything else. What does carbon actually represent? Carbon represents the externality, one of the externalities of growing food. And it's totally okay to price that. I, I have absolutely zero problem with that. Uh, we just haven't done it for the last, I don't know, four, five decades from you know however long our system has been producing food in this way. And it, it's okay. And uh, to, your, to your question, am I hopeful? Yes, because I can see a willingness downstream to pay that externality. Now, is that endless? No, it's not endless. It, I think at the end of the day, there's a, there's a, there's a ceiling to that. But I would say let's we're taking a serious step at pricing externalities of producing our food and, and moving our food around the world. That's just one example. Let, let's give it a try. I, I think that that's, that's a good development. But we've never done that before. It's, it's only recently that we started paying for ecosystem services. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, then we're in a world of social justice, right? Everyone paying the same for a pizza around the world is, is well, it's a very complex subject, as you say. Well, I've I've really appreciated you coming on, Robert. It's been fascinating. And I, you know, I'd love to have you back on again in the future and, and see where we stand, because I do think this is such a, as you say, it's a critical topic to the sector, but it's also you know, other commodity sectors are also energies facing exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of coalescence around, obviously, the solutions in transportation and so forth. But um, yeah, fascinating to have you on. Absolutely. It was my pleasure, Paul. It was good to have this conversation. And it's. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you dedicated one podcast to this uh, fascinating world of, of how we grow food and decarbonize our system. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.